You definitely didn't waste hours of your time. Me? No. Your time. I wasted hours of your time, Danielle. <laughs> That's usual. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do in this podcast. We're just wasting hours of each other's time. And the listeners. Hello, and welcome to Book Retorts. I'm Sam. I'm Danielle. And this is the podcast about sharing your weird media finds with your friends who don't know what you're talking about. Hurrah! And Danielle, even though I've been telling you about this book for at least, but this is going to be our sixth part now, I think you still don't have any idea what I'm talking about. I still don't know what you're talking about, probably because there's no actual plot to this book. <laughs> Danielle, there's no single plot to this book. There are at least six plots to this book. That's true. Which plot are we on? Fifth? Six, Danielle. This is it. This, this is, is the, the finale. Sixth. No, yeah. but I meant like last week. We were on the fifth plot. Yeah. The one I'm going to have to recap was five plots. Well, five or six, depending on if you count the meta plot or not. I don't. Okay. Well, that's your mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's going on in the meta plot, so it uh, doesn't count. They've been traveling across Hyperion. They took a boat called the Benaries. Come on. Yeah. And then one of the, the things died. The rays, the things, the, ma- the, yeah, the, the, the river rays, yeah. So sad. And then Het Masting disappeared. Hey, that reminds me, Danielle. Why don't you tell us what happened last time since we're talking about it? Okay, we listened, or we, meaning me, uh, singular, <laughs> singular we, the royal we. Good start. I, I listened to Sam's retelling of Bron Lamia's, and I don't even know what that would be. <laughs> Cyberpunk noir. Cyberpunk noir story. Let's start with the meta plot, Danielle, because we took a while to get there. There's a lot of meta plot in that episode. I don't get any bonus points for remembering the name of the character for the first time ever. You do. I'm very impressed. If you can tell me the name of her story, I'll be even more impressed. Um, Something about detectives. Nope. The long goodbye. Oh, the long goodbye. Okay. Well... <laughs> <laughs> I only remember her name because I looked up John Keats. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get into that. I'm going to expect you to, after we finish the summary, to give you a summary, a book report, if you will, on your Keats research. Oh, okay. I haven't looked at it in a week, but I'm sure I'll do really well on that, just like I'll do on this story. <laughs> I was about to say, there's no difference between that and this. <laughs> All right, so where did we All leave right. off last time? Do you remember? Um, There's a lot of blood. Where was the blood, Danielle? In oh, the did person? That all, did that all hack actually happen in that story? Yeah. Oh, yeah. darn. Okay, so Het, what's his name? Het Mastin? Hey, that's two for two, Daniel. <laughs> okay, he he disappears during the night in a bloody, bloody hot mess in his room. Disappears from where? From the, where are they staying? They're staying <laughs> yeah. on something. <laughs> in something? Are they in the wind wagon still? He's in the wind wagon! Hey, he's <laughs> on a fire today. Way to go. They're in the wind wagon. He's, he's supposed to be the next one to tell a story, but mysteriously disappears that night in a bloody, bloody mess in his room. Mm-hmm. And then we find out that Bron Lamia is actually a detective. And so I mean, she's in charge. They knew that from the start. Okay, well, those. I found out that she was a detective. <laughs> and she is now in charge of this investigation, but she doesn't want to tell her story till the next day because there's too much death. They have no idea why he disappeared by the way but they don't they what's his face poet dude thinks that it's uh, okay, come on daniel can you go for three for three with names um no martin i almost, martin I, almost had, I always had it and then disappeared oh <laughs> uh, good old martin so he thinks it's a shike because everything's a shike and everybody's like shut up shut up martin <laughs> 
Yeah, it, I mean, it does fit his MO, but also, like, that's very convenient. It is. So, very mysterious, he disappears, and then, what's her face, Braun decides to tell her story the next day. Where do they get to the next day that she tells her story? No idea. You don't remember anything about the tram line through the mountains? Oh, yeah, they end up doing, like, a, a tram that's not being operated by anybody, and they just, like... Say a little prayer and hope for the best. Yeah, they have like a, a cassade rigs it with the rigs the dead man switch with the sandbag. So the tram, which is like a cable suspended cable line through the mountains, will take them to their next stop, which would be Kronos Keep. Right, and so all that happens, they're on the tram, and she tells us her story. I'll ask one more question that may or may not be relevant oh to the story. <laughs> Do you remember what was in Mastine's luggage? Oh, his little ball of energy. Well, the His Mobius thing, box. Yeah, that might that could have anything in it. It could be a spoon. It could be that little erg creature. It <laughs> there could you be go, a, the erg. It could be a, I don't know, anything. Peanut butter yep. sandwich, doesn't matter. He could put anything inside his little box. There you go. Okay, good. Very Make mysterious. sure we have that. <laughs> All right. So, Bron Lamia is telling her story. Bron Lamia is telling her story. And... Uh, it turns out, prior to her trip to Hyperion, she was a detective. And she... Was one day in her office or something when this hot guy walks in, and the hot guy is actually an AI, and he tells her that he wants her to investigate murder, and the murder is his, but he's alive, but he, but he was dead, but he's alive. <laughs> so far, so good. And basically, he is like John Keats personified. He is like the body of John Keats, mind, whatever. But there's an AI intelligence. Oh boy, Danielle, that was a description. <laughs> He was a whatever. All right, let's um, let's let's break this down a bit. He is a. You remember the term for it? No, obviously I would have used it, Sam. <laughs> dumb question is that? He is a cybrid. <laughs> yeah. Okay. He's a cybrid, which is basically the super fancy AI that gets to have a body and and look human and act human, and but in reality, it's actually artificial intelligence. So it's basically a human body drone piloted by an AI living in. Do you remember where the AI live? The data sphere. I don't know. Sam, no, there's the so techno many freaking words. <laughs> Technocore, which is part of the datum plane. Wait, data sphere was a totally valid option. There are data spheres, but those are basically just global networks. So. Okay, whatever. That thing, the technocore <laughs> that's run by a bunch of... Crazy Technocoreans. The AIs. The AIs live in the Technocore. That was like their domain. Right. And so he's living out in the world and he comes in to her office and it's like, hey, uh, a while back, when did it happen? I don't know how long ago it happened. Like a week. Okay. A week ago, somebody killed me. a few me days, for something like that. So whatever. A few days ago, somebody killed me for like two seconds and I've lost a bunch of memories and then I came back to life. But for two seconds for an AI is like a really long time, but obviously not in real life. And so he needs to figure out who tried to kill him and if his memories were stolen or why his memories disappeared. Sure. That's a good enough explanation as any. <laughs> so it doesn't matter that she has absolutely no uh, technology knowledge. She decides to take on this, this case with him, mostly because he's cute, I'm sure. Cute is the best word for it. I think she uses the word beautiful, in fact. Oh, yeah. John Keats. He's a he's dreamy. And gosh, Sam, what happens? He... Uh, <laughs> they... <laughs> you don't remember any of this. Someone who loves detective <laughs> stories, do you remember very little of the detective work they do in this book? It's been a whole week. Two weeks. Oh. It's been two weeks. Two weeks. Do you know what just happened in the last two weeks? 
They say that happens in every two-week interval. <laughs> I don't know. It was a lot. <laughs> so if you remember, they go to the planet where that he was murdered on. Okay. And they go, okay, that's neat. This is where you were murdered. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, this is where they talk a lot about like what it means to die as an AI and what it means. And now he was attacked with the computer AIDS 2 virus. Oh, yeah. That was a thing, apparently. <laughs> Some kind thing. of like pandemic that hurt a lot of humans, but also manages to hurt AI. No, and no, no, no. Something. It was a pandemic, their... AIDS 2 virus. Among they humans. used the name for the computer virus. virus. They just named it after the human virus because, right. yeah, crazy. Uh, then she goes to a bar on, do you remember the planet? No. Tau Ceti Center. Sure. And then she sees the two, the guy who could have been Hetmastine. No, no. She talks to a local there who tells her about seeing That's right. Johnny, the cyber. So we, we didn't cover <laughs> what you said when he was Keats reborn. So let's talk about that for a moment. He is what's known as a persona retrieval project, which is basically- I thought basically, I was very clear, Sam. <laughs> you were not. I think when you listen back, you'll be like, what was I talking about? I know what I was talking about. Yeah, you knew and no one else does, which is not the definition of being clear. Okay, they take the, they do this thing where they put the the mind of a a famous person into the body of a fake human. No. Yes, no, that's, not that's what happens. <laughs> I mean, they recreate, they use artificial intelligence to recreate the mind of a famous person from their writings. And usually they're not given cybers. In fact, you learn later that theoretically, as far as human computer scientists understand, a cyber cannot be a persona retrieval project because it will break down trying to interact with the real world. It has to be kept in a virtual world that is a recreation of their native Oh, is that what you were talking about last time? I didn't. Oh, part of a lot of stuff that I was talking about, you (laughs) seem to just miss. (laughs) Anyway, point is, Johnny, our cyber John Keats persona, was in this bar talking to two people, and Bron learns this by interviewing one of the locals, one of the bar regulars. Right, who's paying way too much attention. Yeah, apparently. (laughs) And one of them could have been Hetmastine. We don't know. Yep. It was a yeah. Templar, could have been Hetmastine. And then the other one, I don't remember. He was a Lucian. Sure. Which is a person from the planet Lucis who had a Q. <laughs> Good call. I'm just saying that you seem very unsure what that word meant. <laughs> I don't know if you remember there was a planet called Lucis or not. I did not remember that. You're That's right. That's what I would do. You're welcome. <laughs> Though I did assume he came from some kind of planet named similarly to what his nationality was, I guess. (laughs) Look, uh, Danielle, I don't assume anything here. That's why I'm being clear. Anyways, the point is, there was a Lucian with a Q who left with Johnny, and that was the last thing that happened to him before he disappeared or had his accident. And then lost several uh, days of his life, and also knowledge of Hyperion, we find out later. Well, he never had that. But yeah, but it's weird because he's AI, so he should really yeah. just know everything. Yeah, it's weird that he's been specifically denied that information. Right. Um, at one point, they're followed because she's following the person following him. Well, okay. Before that, he's attacked in his apartment. No, that's before he gets followed? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's attacked in his apartment, but it's interrupted by someone. I don't know who. <laughs> He sets off the alarm. Oh, he alarm. sets the alarm. He sets the alarm, yeah. And then that's when Braun invites him to stay with her for protection. Uh-huh. They have sexy times at some point. Nope. Well, not much yet. later. Way <laughs> like, later. They, they definitely do, Sam. I mean, they absolutely have sex, but not like, we got like half a story to go before we get oh, to the sex. gosh, okay. <laughs> I mean, we'll probably get there really quickly because we're going to breeze past most of this, I assume, based on the level of depth we're going into now. 
sorry, I started strong, but I didn't remember the rest of it. <laughs> so that's when they decide to have Johnny act as bait to draw out the person who was following him and then Braun to follow them as like a double tail. Mm-hmm. Do you remember where they go to? Mm, no. They end up on God's Grove. Sure. The Templar planet. And I don't nope. remember. No, I don't know. Any Sam, I don't remember. Yeah, none of this. <laughs> they do a tour of the World Tree, which is kind of nice. And then eventually, as they get off the tour, Braun just like goes up to the guy who's following them, which is the Lucian with the Q. You were correct about that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And she just confronts him and is like, hey, why are you following my client? Which oh, goes about as well as you expect. He's like... He says he's protecting him or no, something, No, he doesn't right? say anything. He just runs. They fight Yeah, and he but runs. they eventually, that's what they tell her when they, like, Way later. That's <laughs> way later. <laughs> Mystery, Danielle. Oh, she finds Sorry, the murderer. Sorry, audience, you're probably already listening to the, the previous the like, you I'm just saying, Danielle, if you're, you're going to retell a mystery story, you don't start with like Sherlock Holmes. Oh, it. it was the Hound of the Baskervilles. She did it. And like, whatever. Like, that's not the story. I'm but. trying to quickly summarize, Sam. The so spotted band was a snake. That's the end of it. <laughs> the point is, they confront, they fight. He, he apparently commits suicide by bursting into flames when she's about to kick his butt. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And then Johnny helps guide her to a farcaster and they flee to where? Hyperion. No. You said that last time. We're wrong then, too. <laughs> I just keep saying it. Eventually, it's right, Sam. It's the answer like 50% of the time. They never go to Hyperion in this story. <laughs> oh, darn. How can you not remember the old Earth analog? Um, I mean, yeah, I kind of remember that they end up at old Earth, which is yeah, very mysterious. In 18, you know, the 1800s Italy, where John Keats died. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, am I the one telling this or you? <laughs> I don't remember what happens. How do you remember none of this? All I remember is the finale where they end up in the the not data sphere and like she, he puts the thing behind her ear. I remember that part. Oh boy, Daniel, you got none of this in one ear, out the other. It's <laughs> paying attention at the time. I just don't remember it now, Sam. Well, I think that's the definition of in one ear, out the other. <laughs> They have a lot of discussions about Keats and what it means to they be do. Keats and blah 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 blah. So they find an old Earth analog which the Technocore had recreated in the Hercules Cluster as part of their retrieval project so that they could recreate people and give them an environment where they could exist in to make it more real. Mm-hmm. Because recreating a mine from the 1800s, it has to exist in an 1800s environment or it's going to like crack because like this isn't right. And eventually Keats does crack because the environment isn't right for him. But, you know, at some point he sort of just gets over it and is like, okay, I'm, I'm stopped believing that he's actually John Keats and realizes he's not really John Keats. And then they have sex. See, or somewhere in there they have sex. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I knew they did, Danielle. You just missed about, you know, 100 pages worth of plot. I don't know if any of that was important, though. And at some point, she meets up with, what's her face? Mina Gladstone. That's the very end. <laughs> I remembered her name, though, too. I'm using all my brain capacity to remember names, Sam. Well, I'm going to give you a bunch more uh, in a minute. And while they're on the planet, they're attacked by a bunch of, your favorite word, goondas. Mm-hmm. Yes, I recall the word. Did you? Oh, you I recall the word. Because <laughs> they're on, like, don't they end up on some kind of Indian planet? Indian-esque planet? That is way the beginning. <laughs> That's the planet where he was attacked originally. <laughs> oh, see, I knew it was involved somehow. <laughs> All right. We're going to just gloss past this. They're attacked in Italy, quote unquote, the fake Italy on, on the recreation of Old Earth by the Gundas, and Braun murders one by dropping a bed on his head. Really? And- Yes. I, <laughs> I told you. And you're like, wow, that's impressive. How how tired were you that day? Did you hear anything I said? I, I, maybe not. 
And then they take they they take their uh, the EMV of the Gundas and they take it back to the um, Empire State Building where they find the Farcaster and takes them where where does the Farcaster take them? Not Hyperion. No, it takes them to the Shrike Temple on Lucis. Okay, you don't remember any of this with the Shrike I mean, Temple being involved? I I know that she wanted to help him out somehow, doesn't she? Danielle, that's what she's been hired to do from the very first no. page. <laughs> Involved with the Shrike Temple because at some point she wants to go on a, uh, a whatever a trek with others to to Hyperion. Okay. Oh, all right. They're at the Shrike Temple. This is where you get all the information you were talking about. Where the Shrike, uh, the bishop, is all like, "Hey, you came to us. You know, our goons were sent to bring you here. We're trying to help you. You came to us and you want to go to Hyperion on a pilgrimage. We have a ship in orbit." And we're going to send thousands of our people to Hyperion, which we think is going to be the very last of the pilgrimages. Right. Well, clearly that doesn't work. <laughs> you want to be one of them. And we said, sure, because we'd love to have John Keats go to Hyperion. There's a lot of mythos for John Keats involved in Hyperion, and we're big on that. So we were concerned when Braun Lamia killed your bodyguard, which you had requested. Mm-hmm. Which was the man with the queue. And this is where it's claimed that he's the bodyguard. Right. Which is very suspicious and very unlikely. Yes. And so at this point, they say, okay, well, you have like nine days until the ship leaves or whatever. So let us know by then if you want to go. And they let them go. Mm-hmm. Still nothing, huh? <laughs> <laughs> at some point, they end up in the the data sphere thing. <laughs> Technicore. So at this point, Johnny says, hey, we should do a, t- we should do a cyber heist. To steal the data because the only way for me to get to Hyperion. Oh, because, yeah, because the only way for him to get to Hyperion okay, is if he puts all of his. <laughs> if he puts all of the information from the, the Technocore into his, like, human esque body. He can't, just, he can't do both. Well, he has to basically take all of his consciousness, his AI right. consciousness, out of the Technocore and invest into his human body. Although he won't be able to fit all of it, so something's going to get lost. But he'll become more human, he thinks, by doing that. Right, which is basically what I just said. And he, uh, <laughs> but all it's the obvious- of the whole techno core. Just being <laughs> but clear, it's, but it's obviously more risky because then he doesn't have like two consciousnesses. He's got only the one, like a regular. He human. has no backup. He's not yeah. an immortal AI at that point. Right, right, right. And so they decide that they're going to do it, and they bring in the friend dude. Do you remember why he has to do this? Why he can't just go to Hyperion as an AI? Because it's uh, Hyperion's not tied into the network yes. or something. So suspiciously, the Technocore has excluded Hyperion from the datum plane, essentially. I mean, everything in this book was suspicious. Yeah, okay, good. I mean, it's a mystery. <laughs> that's that's the idea. <laughs> so yes, they go to her friend, BB, who is a... What is he, Danielle? Come on, uh, you gotta know this word. Techno puke. I just said it. You're not hearing me. No, that's the wrong word. It's cyber puke, Danielle. Cyber puke. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so close. I was so <laughs> you got, close. <laughs> you got the important part of that. Puke. He's a cyber puke, name of BB, and they go on the cyber heist. But what's his face dies? BB butt, but BB dies. Yeah, BB bites the farm. His head explodes. <laughs> his head explodes. Very sad. But they do manage to extract the data. But Braun is also rendered unconscious. After she is, escaping. and when she wakes up, she has a little device behind her ear because uh, what's this? Don Keats Jr. is not very into consent, and he's <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and he like downloads all his information to her at some point. Yes, so she put a, a, a link in there with a I believe it's called a Shron loop as well, which is a massive data storage device inside of her. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, the device itself isn't massive, but it can hold a massive amount of data. And this is when he explains that about the data they extracted from the Technocore. You remember what that data was? Oh, no. Nothing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they learned that there were three factions in the political workings of the Technocore. You had the Stables, the Volatiles, uh, and the Ultimate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ultimate Go Team. And how one of the goals of the Technocore was to create an ultimate intelligence that would have perfect precognitive powers because they're all about predicting the future and they can predict about 200 years in the future. But the big problem is Hyperion is something that they cannot account for. Right. The time tombs really throw them off. Yeah. And there are two possibilities for what the time tombs are in the Shrike Age. Do you remember what those two possibilities are that they think are? Um, more Shrikes? Maybe, but that's not what <laughs> the question I'm asking is. No, I don't remember. My gosh. Okay. This is all very fundamental to the story, Dan. You have to give up with this. They think that either, at some point, the volatiles will wipe out humanity, or at least try to, and mm-hmm. get most of it, and that in the future, between the war of humanity and the Technocore, one of them, either the Technocore will send the Time Tombs back in time with the Shrike as a first strike against humanity, or the humans are sending the Shrike and the Time Tombs back in time as a sort of last-ditch weapon to destroy the Technocore before humanity is wiped out. So 50-50. They don't know which one it is, which is why they're so nervous, because it's either something to help them or something that's going to destroy them. Makes sense. So their policy has been to keep it the heck away from them so they don't have to worry about disturbing it because they don't know what it is yet. Right. And so Johnny, as the Keats persona, and Braun are also part of this unknown factor that's tied into Hyperion, which is why they got so skittish once Johnny wanted to go to Hyperion. Like, that can't happen. That's going to cause all kinds of weird stuff that we're not prepared for. At some point, Johnny dies. Okay, Daniel, we're so far from that. <laughs> we're not that far from that, but like, Wow. <laughs> It's not my fault this is taking this long, Danielle. You know who coldly biffed on all the very important plot information. Like, oh, there's no plot to this book. And I'm telling you all the plot about the different factions and their machinations. You're like, oh, that's not important. Well, I, how am I supposed to know what's actually important for future things, Sam? Because each book seems very standalone. <laughs> I think the whole, hey, here's, the, here's what the time tombs are, is a pretty important thing since they're the big mystery about the entire book so far. But that's me. <laughs> I'll try and focus harder on the actual plot as opposed to these whatever random stories you're telling me are. All right. So they decide they decide to arm up and fight their way to the Shrike Church, the Shrike Temple, as a means to get to Hyperion despite the Core's wishes. So uh, Johnny has dumped his consciousness to the cybered body, and they're fighting their way through, and that's when he dies. And Braun sees him die in her arms after, they, after she drags him into the temples to safety. After that, he dumps his consciousness into her. Right. Yeah, into the Shran loop. And then she realizes that – is that this part yet? What? She, she realizes that she's pregnant. <laughs> I mean, that happens a little later. She goes to talk to <laughs> Mina Gladstone now. Mm-hmm. And her and Mina have a nice girl bonding conversation. And uh, Mina tells her a bunch of stuff that she probably doesn't need to know. But she knows about Old Earth. Mina does. She knows about the Old Earth. She knows about the Technocore's aversion to Hyperion. And at this point, Braun suspects Technocore had her father killed because he was a senator trying to pass a bill That's to bring right. Hyperion into the web. and. Mina also wants it to happen. Yep. But now there's going to be an ouster war, which is going to force Hyperion to become part of the web since they'll have to make it part of the web to defend it from the ousters. So they're basically forcing the Technocore to like make a decision on what Hyperion is because they're going to bring it part of the web no matter what now. Mm-hmm. And then Mina says there's no going to be no more pilgrimages. We're canceling that big thousand person pilgrimage. And so you're out of luck. But then later she gets contacted to say, hey, we're sending just seven people. Do you want to be part of it? 
And that's you when she ends up there. You could be one of them. You and your pregnant self. She's pregnant, and she has John Keats's consciousness inside Keats. of her. Yes. The end. <laughs> that was like pulling teeth, Danielle. <laughs> I was really terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was, I mean, like, you usually do pretty well, but that was the worst one you've had in Quite recent some time. memory. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I really just didn't remember any of that. I'm very sorry. <laughs> that's fine. I'm just saying, like, ooh, that's going to be, you're going to have to listen to that one. <laughs> that's going to be on you. <laughs> Putting that one out in the world. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's all good. No apologies. You can you can rectify that by telling us a little bit about John Keats. Okay. Um, well, Keats was a poet. So far, so good. <laughs> late 17... Well, he was born in the late 1700s. Like He was you know, mostly a poet through the 1800s. And I guess his contemporaries would be like Byron and Shelley and all of those, all those ones. Anyway, he died really young. He died of uh, tuberculosis at age like, I think it was 25. Yep. And like half his family died of tuberculosis, not at the same time, just intermittently throughout his life. Most of his family died okay. of tuberculosis, which is wild. Like how many people, like why? <laughs> Crazy. Because there was a disease that killed a lot of people, didn't I know, but just like his whole family was really prone towards it. And uh, he got a little famous towards the end of his life. It was definitely more famous after he passed away, which, you know. Isn't that just the way of things? Anything about his great love? Yeah. Last name was – last name? First name? Last name. Last name was Braun. Fanny? Fanny Braun, Fanny I Braun. think. Good. Yeah. And Lamia is the name of one of his poems. So now you know why he yeah. used Braun Lamia in his story. All the names here have meaning, I'm sure, that I do not understand. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, he was into he was into Fanny, but it never <laughs> fully worked out, especially since when he was on his deathbed, he ended up having to go to Italy and he got stuck on a boat for quite some time because he was trying to get to a warmer climate. But then he got to Italy much too late and it was cold and then he died. It was a really depressing uh, end of his life, actually. Thank you, Danielle, for that lovely book report. <laughs> there you go. Join us next man. time for more depressing facts about John Keats's life. <laughs> I, mean, I can't help that John Keats had a depressing life. <laughs> He did recreate the ode, though. That was, like, his thing, obviously. I mean, he's well known for his odes, but that was, like, that was, he completely changed the way that odes were written. Ooh, he was an so, oditary man. He was. I'm not sure what that means, but here we are. <laughs> I didn't know what it meant either. <laughs> All right, well, let's get back into the final, I'm sure everyone's itchy to be done with this book and see the very dramatic conclusion of this story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All the payoff, none of the plot. <laughs> Especially when Danielle recaps things. All right. So we're going to start part six here, Danielle. Okay. The pilgrims have departed off of the tramway onto Kronos Keep. They've made it safely through the Bridal Range to Kronos Keep, which was once the tourist hotel that had been taken over by the Shrike Cult for the last 200 years. The place is a mess. The food in the dining hall is all left out and rotten. It's like people left in a hurry, and there's bloody clothes and robes everywhere. They suspect that either the Shrike or some of the <laughs> local defense forces came through here and wrecked stuff. I just like that the Shrike's just, you know, or whatever, is just hitting up all places. He's like, I'm going to kill over here. I'm going to kill over there. I'm going to kill over here. Daniel, what does a shrike do? Kill. There you go. So why you, oh, this is all surprising. <laughs> this is what it does. This is his whole existence. <laughs> he puts bodies on his spikes. <laughs> puts bodies on his, on his spiked tree. So Martin explains the place was built by Sad King Billy's Bond clones and androids, which that's a couple of bad terms, in anticipation <laughs> of the colony to be used as a tourist resort. The fact that it seems to look like a spooky castle built on the side of a mountain was an odd choice, I think, for a tourist resort. But I guess it would probably mean, work. 
Did we meet Sad King Billy? He definitely wanted a spooky tourist attraction. <laughs> Did we meet Sad King Billy? There's a whole story about Sad King Billy. Dana. No, I meant that's what I meant. Oh, okay. like we met him. That's uh, makes perfect sense if you know Sad King Billy. That's fair. That's fair. He probably was in like they probably he and what's his Martin Salinas probably had a big conversation about it and decided to build it into the mountain. I mean, that's, that's actually probably true. <laughs> <laughs> That seems completely normal to me. <laughs> it's amazing what this book makes seem normal to you. <laughs> so they decide to stay the night and head to the time tombs in the morning. So they settle in on a balcony to eat the last of their dried food for dinner. Father Hoyt entertains them by playing his balalaika, which apparently he has. Father Hoyt's with them? Father Hoyt's always been with them. Did he have a story? Danielle, he told the cruciform story with he Father Paul Duray. Okay. Yeah. I just couldn't remember his name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you have a first name, Father Hoyt? Uh, Leonard. Maybe that was why. I don't know. No, I don't know. He's always called Father Hoyt. They, they don't call him like, hey, Leonard, come on over here. <laughs> well, maybe we just didn't use his name as much in the story. <laughs> that was very long ago, Sam. That was like four months ago. <laughs> it has been a while. But we're almost done. So the consul laments that he doesn't have his piano to join in. And Martin's just like, hey, call your ship here because your piano's there. And Cassad's like, that's impossible. The comm sets are down. The data sphere on the planet is down. There's no way to get any communications anywhere. He's not connected to his ship like what's-his-face was to his blown-up tree. What? <laughs> I said he's not connected to you his ship. You didn't see me, Danielle. I just sat here <laughs> blinking for a good 10 seconds after that sentence. <laughs> I said he's not connected to his ship like what's-his-name was with his blown-up tree. <laughs> I, I, are you talking about the Shrike in its tree? No, I'm talking about what's his face with his big tree ship that got blown up in the sky like a book ago. Het Massing, what, how is Het Massing connected to the tree? Well, he was connected to his tree because he was like one with the tree. Yeah, who did have like a remote control tree. to drive it? No, but I don't know. I didn't know. Maybe he could like call it to him or something, Sam. I don't know how connected he was to his tree. Regardless, the console is not cyclically connected that to his- valid question no it wasn't <laughs> i don't know how far the connection with his magic tree ship went for all i know it was like a dog he could call across the galaxies also the console is not a templar and does not have a connection to a non-living regular spaceship but the whole book opens with him on a ship maybe he also had a connection to it maybe it's some kind of creature and not an actual ship. i don't no, know Sam. it could ship. be anything <laughs> i'm telling you danielle he does not have a connection to it <laughs> don't talk to me like i'm crazy that was that was a completely valid thing to ask <laughs> i'll let the listeners be the judge of that because i don't know <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Is a ship that's connected to a human too much for this sci-fi novel? Danielle, please. Let's not get ridiculous. <laughs> oh, <God>. Okay. <laughs> Carry on. No, he can't call a ship to him. I got it. All communication lines are down. But Braun is then like, I think you have a fat line transmitter. And everyone's like, well, that's impossible. You do a squirt. Mm, yes, Danielle. Thank you for that projection. <laughs> Everyone's like, no, that's impossible. Fat line transmitters have to be the size of buildings. They're enormous. And Bronze are like, well, while the hegemony currently has no ability to create fat line transmitters that are portable, it's rumored that the ousters can. Ooh, is he working with the ousters? Maybe. He just sort of smiles and doesn't answer anything. And then they're briefly distracted by some noises, which turn out to be birds that are eating the, you know, spoiled food. Then they're called harbingers because, of course, they are. They're not shrikes. <laughs> they're birds. They're that harbingers. That would have been funny, though. Not shrikes. It would have been funny if there were shrikes there, but no. They're harbingers because <laughs> subtlety. <laughs> Those little shrike birds. <laughs> they're like, oh, hey, look, the birds have little But spikes. shrikes eat, like, insects. They don't come in to, like, eat flesh or whatever from rotting corp. Maybe they, I mean, they probably don't, but I think they eat insects. <laughs> There's no proof of that. We haven't looked up shrikes. Danielle hasn't done shrike hour yet on Book Retorts. <laughs> Maybe next time. 
Kassad says, you know what? You should tell your story here. That's the last story we have. Might as well get it over with. And the console laments that it's kind of pointless now, since without Hetmastine, they're no longer a prime number for the pilgrimage, which invalidates the whole thing. What? Why? Because at the very beginning, the whole point was it has to be a prime number of people who go on the pilgrimage. Why? Because that's... That's the way it works, Danielle. That's what the religious tradition and, and all the rumors okay, and whatever. legend is. <laughs> the legend is, for the shrike to grant you a request of one of the people, you have to be a prime number that visits on the pilgrimage. Because the shrike is very up on his math. <laughs> this is the first thing I said in that first like pre-story. The first, oh, I'm sorry. Like, opening I don't uh, remember that million years I know later. You know, that's fine. I'm not saying you should remember that, but I'm just telling you this is not without precedent. So you should not okay. be like, where did this come from? Like, well, it came from someplace <laughs> you don't remember. All right. Okay. I don't remember stuff that happened two weeks ago and you want me to remember something about prime numbers on their ship. <laughs> well, I'm not saying you have to remember. I'm just saying you have to accept that this is something that's already been established. This is okay. not out of nowhere. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Prime numbers. Got it. Point is all. Can't Rachel, the baby, count as our seventh? And Saul yes. is like, no, because a pilgrim has to go on this journey of their own free will. And like he's bringing Rachel. Like, she can't make that decision as a baby. And so they argue back and forth, and Martin finally is like, hey guys, this is all very stupid, because one, the number thing might just be a legend, and two, who knows how many we actually count on, because we have, like, Het Nasty might still be alive, we have the second cruciform of Paul DeRay on Father Hoyt's pies, that might count as a second person, we have the Keats persona <laughs> inside of Braun and her unborn babies, that might be two more right there. There's like 12 of us. <laughs> he basically says, we're like, we're like a mob, who knows, yeah. There's Rachel, there's also the Erg, which is also sentient, kind of, which might also count, like, so maybe we should all just, like, chill out about the exact prime number thing and just, like, <laughs> drop it. And they're all like, yeah, that kind of, yeah, probably. <laughs> good call, good call. It's like the one good argument Martin has in the entire book. <laughs> The one it's sensible impressive. thing he yeah, says. It's impressive that came from Martin, of all people. I mean, he's being all, like, jokey. Like, we're, we're not, like, a group. We're not seven people. We're a mob of people. But he's like, yeah, you're right. Uh, and then, suddenly, the sky lights up with the flashes of space battle. The War of the Ousters has begun. Uh-oh. In the flashes of light, Hoyt notices a figure out in the valley headed towards the time tombs. It looks like a Templar from the robes, possibly head masting, but he's half a day ahead of them somehow, so they can't do anything about him now. They'll hopefully catch up with him tomorrow. He's just trying to get a... Why? <laughs> Danielle. How did he get in front of them? He didn't. He was on the tramway. How did he cross the mountain range? How did he cross Magic. the sea of grass? Danielle, mysteries. Maybe he has wings. Yes, he has wings, Danielle. Maybe he used whatever is inside his little box. Maybe there's nothing in the box anymore. Maybe, Danielle. We don't know. It's a mystery. Are we going to find out? Or is Not this just book. like... <laughs> <laughs> That's just annoying. <laughs> All right, let's go. So, they debate a little <laughs> on if the Ousters will destroy the time tombs with remote drones or smart bombs, since crude ships can't get near them, or whether they want to control the time tombs instead of destroying them. Either way, after a while, the console decides to tell a story. To do so, he tells them he needs to tell someone else's story first and pulls out an old comlog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a dork. And Martin bemoans that apparently he's the only person in this whole group who can tell a straightforward story. <laughs> okay, Martin. <laughs> I know. But mid-complaint, the console grabs him by, like, his collar and slams up against the wall and tells him, like, one more word and I'm going to kill you. Oh, that was dramatic. Yeah. Kassad separates them. The console apologizes for his outburst. He's never expected to tell the story. And, you know, it's, obviously it's given him a lot of anxiety and tension and whatever. Why does he have to tell the story? I mean, technically you don't. He doesn't have to, but he decides that, you know, might as well, right? Sure. I mean, Het got him out of it. <laughs> he yeah, needs right? to pretend to kill himself. Het. I don't think he'd call him Het. <laughs> Good old Het. <laughs> 
So he starts playing a recording from the comm log to young man's voice talking in the first person. Until we begin the console story. He's making everybody like listen to a book on tape. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sit back, have children. Let me tell you my story. Click. <laughs> so it's yeah, so we begin the console story, remembering Siri. Oh, there's jokes. There's so many jokes. Don't say him, Danielle, because this is way before Siri. <laughs> or after. Both. <laughs> he starts by saying, in the voice, I climbed the steep hill of the Ceres tomb on the day the islands returned to the shallow seas of the equatorial archipelago. He's being followed distantly by a crowd as he makes his way up the hill, leaving the procession of mourners. He's also being accompanied by his younger son, named Donald, his granddaughter Lyra, and his nine-year-old grandson, who goes conspicuously unnamed. Oh, it must be the consul. <laughs> yeah, duh. <laughs> like, the only person in this book without a name. He's called the consul. That is literally his name, Sam. The consul. <laughs> right. So the man in the story, telling the story, he reaches the crest where Ciri's tomb is, but instead of going in, he stands on a cliff and reminisces. The story is going to be a lot of this, Danielle, where it jumps around to him, to like, oh, let me tell you this little story about uh, Ciri, and then jumps back to the present, and back and like, forth, and back and forth. So um, get ready for some very nonlinear storytelling. I love it. <laughs> it's like the lake kind. house all over again. <laughs> I'm going to say it's actually more coherent than the lake house, somehow. <laughs> <laughs> That's not hard. Low bar. <laughs> yeah. He's recalling seeing a Thomas Hawk the first night he and Siri came to this hilltop. She had been nearly 16, and he was 19 then. His name was Marin, and he was a shipman on leave. He lay there while he described the workings of the Hawking Drive spin ship to her. The spin ship was called the Los Angeles. He was crewed on it. Now, this sounds like the exact kind of play I would make when flirting. <laughs> However, he seems to have much more success than I do because they totally bang. <laughs> Of course they do. It's so sexy, Sam. Let me tell you about the workings of a spin show. Okay, so here's how the Hawking Drive works. You're not getting hot and bothered by this, are you? Not too hot and bothered, because I want you to can't control yourself. We can't, like, you know, make it too quick. I'm sure it's just his intelligence and how he phrases. You just need to work on your phrasing. Yes, that's my problem. My real problem is I don't phrase things sexily enough when talking about whatever, science or something. <laughs> I mean, possibly. I, I don't have any proof to the contrary, thank God. <laughs> yeah, I have no proof to either way, thankfully. <laughs> All right, well, back in the present, Marin is aware that the crowd wants him to hurry up and say his goodbyes so they can get back to the real purpose of today's celebration, the activation of the newly built Farcaster and the introduction of Maui Covenant into the hegemony and world web. Ooh, Maui Covenant! Yeah. Marin, though, decides to stall a little and, quote-unquote, remember Siri. Name of the story! Dun-dun-dun. Yay. That phrase Take comes a up a lot in this story, and I'll not be mentioning it every time. You should, because we could play a drinking game with our listeners. Listeners, if you'd like to take a drink every time Sam says remembering Siri. Well, my feel notes free. don't have it in there, so it's not going to happen. <laughs> Just assume. <laughs> so the first time he saw her, she was dressed in a bird costume at a festival. It was five years ago for Marin, but more than 65 years ago in standard time. So hang on, hang on. I'm already lost. So the. This is that it's not the same person that he just slept with, right? Yeah, it's the same person. So, so he remembers earlier his first time with Siri okay. on this hilltop. Now he's remembering when he first saw her dressed in a bird costume at a festival, okay, that, which it. was five years ago for him, but 65 years ago in standard time. Got it. Okay, continue on. His shipmate friend Mike had convinced him to sneak away during shore leave to the festival. They served on the Los Angeles, bringing crews and supplies over to build the Farcaster. The crew wasn't allowed to mingle with the locals and was supposed to be confined to a single island, but Mike insisted he had a workaround. Jump to Marin talking about how Siri's body never ceased to amaze him. <laughs> 
On his fifth planet fall, their fourth reunion, he saw her cry for the first time. By that time, she had been elected to the All Thing four times, and the Hegemony Council relied on her guidance. At first, he was intimidated by the seeming stranger, but she was still Siri, and she cried and told him to turn away from her, not to see her now aged while he was still young. But he placated her by kissing her and then having sex. So he's staying young because he's traveling? Yeah, he's doing time, he's doing traveling through, I think they call it quantum jumps or or going quantum on the Hawking Drive, and so he's got time debt accruing, and she's staying on the planet, aging in normal time. Got it. Back to Mike, he and Marin... That is the most normal of names for our, our author here, Dan Simmons. Mike? Um, <laughs> yeah. He has a last name I don't remember because it wasn't important. <laughs> Mike isn't with us very long. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like all his other names are like just slightly off, you know? <laughs> and then he's like, Is Siri Mike. that weird? Uh, I mean, I don't know how popular it was prior to Siri. <laughs> I mean, uh, clearly it's it was not, a real It's name. not a name you hear commonly. Do you know a lot of series? I don't know. Take a poll, Daniel. Maybe it's uh, it's more common outside of the United States. Very possibly. So anyway, he and Mike, they're planet side, and Mike has them both put on Harlequin costumes for the festival, and then pulls out a hawking mat that he had scavenged from some other leave they had on a different planet. That's the magic carpet, right? Yeah. So hawking mats, we learn, were invented more than a century earlier by Vladimir Sholokov, a master lepidot... <laughs> Gosh, sorry. <laughs> a lot of tongue twisters. Lepidopatrist. Lepidopatrist. Lep- Lepidopterist. Lepidopterist. <laughs> a lepidopterist. Jeez, that's a hard word. So he was a Vladimir Solkov, a master lepidopterist and EM engineer, which is a great combo because a lepidopterist is a butterfly expert. Yes. <laughs> so most of these butterflies. Super commonly well-known word. Yeah. Well, you again, it's time for vocabulary words <laughs> with Sam. <laughs> do, 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 do. So they fly the mat over the ocean towards the festival at the city of first sight. <laughs> Cut to Marin talking to Siri during their second reunion. They were walking along the beach, but Marin noted that their 10-year-old son, Alon, had stayed behind. Marin was not quite comfortable with his son since, you know, he barely knew him. <laughs> Siri teases him that he knows very little. Marin recalls how he'd been reluctant to come for their second reunion, as the poet and her people were calling it, which, what? What? Yeah. Why are the poets and the people so excited about the reunion? I don't know, Daniel. Is everybody like watching them? Do they know their story? I will maybe Is this find like out. The Truman more. Show. <laughs> no. So he was nearly twenty-one. Siri was thirty-seven at this point, and he retorts that he's seen places she'll never see. And she responds, "You probably know more facts about the universe than I would guess exist, but you know very little, my darling." So she was freaked out about being older than him, and she's only thirty-seven. He well, was no, twenty-one. That was, that was the fourth reunion. This is their second reunion. Oh, so she was older at that point. I'm she sorry. She was much older, it's, yeah. There's a lot of jumping around, Sam. <laughs> well, I, I told you there absolutely would be, so get ready for this. <laughs> you know I can barely, like, contain stories in my brain for longer than 30 seconds. Like a goldfish with stories. <laughs> which is if a, goldfish a mess, really still. had an yeah. issue. Yeah, we both went there, Danielle. Thank you. <laughs> Mythical, the goldfish of myth. <laughs> what was I looking for? <laughs> the goldfish of legend. <laughs> My brain is the goldfish of legend. The archetypical goldfish. <laughs> oh, right. goldfish of legend. Sticking with it. That, that does sound cooler. It sounds like <laughs> something that like, oh, Hercules, one of your ten trials. You must fight the goldfish of legend. <laughs> legend. Who will forget that he's fighting you. <laughs> yes. Which is the real problem because then you have to like start over every ten seconds and it never ends. You got to do the hydra. You got to do the lion. You got to get the golden fleece. And now you got to fight the goldfish. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then fight him again, and then fight him. Clean the stables. I think there were more. I can't remember all his, his trials. That was but... impressive. Good job. <laughs> uh, there's something else out there. Not important. So she goes on to assert that there's something about raising a child that helps one to know what's real. Marin is just confused by that, and she tries to explain a bit more about like, oh, you have to know what's important. Like you go into a room, you know who's worth talking to and who's not worth talking to, and what's real and what isn't. And Marin just doesn't. He's like, I don't get it. I know what you're talking about. And she just gives up and they bang again. That's because it's nonsense. <laughs> It might be. The way she's explaining it is nonsense. The way I'm explaining it might be nonsense. I don't know. She did maybe do it better in the book, but I was going to quote a whole couple of paragraphs of her trying to explain this concept because no one's got time for that. And you remember it, it anyway. <laughs> it's true. Well. So back with Mike. They land the hawking mat and stash it. Mike talks about how the Maui Covenant was originally established by a bunch of do-gooders to save all of old Earth's ocean mammals. Uh, they failed in that endeavor. Well, yeah, they did. They could even save Earth. Yep. And then they get changed into their costumes and head towards the festival. Back to the present, quote-unquote, where Marin is sitting outside Ciri's tomb and stares up at the newly finished Farcaster array. This is his sixth reunion with Ciri, and he's suddenly filled with sorrow. He expects they'll soon send his younger son, his surviving son, Donal, to urge him on. Marin thinks about how ignorant Ciri could seem to him. She knew nothing of his life away from her and would ask questions, but he could only wonder if she actually was interested in his long-winded answers about, like, how the physics of the spin ship worked or whatever. Did they stay, like, together that entire time, as in they didn't even, like, sleep with other people or whatever? Well, we'll get to this, Danielle. Okay. Because <laughs> that's a long time in between visits. <laughs> about 11 years or so each time. Yeah. Like, nobody would blame her. Yeah, no. So she didn't know Hegemony history and viewed the world web more as like a myth. So I'm like, oh, I've heard about that, but I've never had any experience with it. The last time he saw Siri, she was 70 years old and had never traveled off world, used a fat line, or used any drugs or alcohol except wine. She also said she'd never slept with anyone else except for him. <laughs> but apparently that might be not true. No, that's absolutely probably true, which again, they do this a lot. Like I mentioned this when I talked about, uh, was it Lord of the Sky, where the women in these books, like the love interest women, are always have to be faithful to the men but the men like men are never, never faithful yeah exactly so it's that exact same dichotomy here sounds like a sci-fi novel <laughs> that was a fantasy novel danielle Lord of the but Sky. it's still kind of similar concepts i mean they're both they yeah both it's not like a novel written by men is what it is it's like <laughs> yeah. a novel written by men Ugh, there's some some descriptions here that are very male geezy <laughs> love it so we cut to their first reunion where siri took him to talk to the dolphins woohoo Siri was 26, he was still 19. Then there's this gross line where he says, Her body had ripened, filled out with a promise which had been only hinted at before. And I don't know why male Arthurs are so creepy describing women's bodies. I mean, I do know why, but like, come on, you don't have to be creepy about it, guys. <laughs> Figure it out. Is he generally creepy about it at any other point in time? Or like Dan Simmons, I mean, or is it just, is it like through the gaze of this character? I mean, it's hard to say. Like when he described uh, Cassad's romantic relations with Monita, like the sex scenes were, you know, again, kind of male gazy, but they were kind of going both ways. I don't think he's like terrible at it. It's just very obviously, oh, this is a guy's perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, this is probably the worst of it, though. Does it go along with the character? Yeah, I think uh, kind of. The guy is kind of a, I mean, he's also a young man who is mostly horny and not very smart. <laughs> like, he's a sailor on shore leave. So yeah, it kind of fits with his character. And to be fair, in the previous story, it was all female geese as Braun was totally a hot for Johnny. So for, Yeah, dreamy John Keats. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I'm not trying to disparage Mr. Simmons. <laughs> I'm just saying that's a gross line and 
<laughs> whether it's Marin or whether it's Simmons, either way, gross line. <laughs> it is. Agreed. So they were on a modal isle, which are the living creatures that have like nature going on their backs. They're like giant living islands. That's cool. And Siri insists they go for a dive wearing osmosis masks. And she brings along a necklace with a disc on it she calls a translation disc. So they can talk. Yeah. Ooh. They swim down below the isle and she turns on the translator and calls out, Hello. And a few minutes later, dolphins swim around them. She passes the disc to Marin so he can talk to them. He offers them greetings from the surface. And the response is, <laughs> no fluke, no feed, no swim, no play, no fun. I'm sure it would totally translate over. <laughs> well, that's basically how the entire like conversation is just a bunch of like two-word answers with slashes that don't make much sense. I think dolphins are smarter than that. I, I don't know. Maybe. I am not here to debate the intelligence of dolphins. I'm just saying they're talking <laughs> they're to dolphins. They're notoriously very intelligent, Sam. <laughs> yeah, but language is a different thing than intelligence. Right. That's why it was interesting that they thought that a language translator would actually work. That's why I think dolphins would be more intelligent than that. Anyway, uh, they have a similarly unclear conversation about other things where the dolphins say that they miss the great voices, aka whales, but what they miss most are sharks for some reason. Because sharks are awesome. <laughs> sharks are awesome, but why would a dolphin miss sharks? <laughs> Whales are creepy. <laughs> They're not. They like they miss them too. They're just like, our favorite, our thing we miss the most from Earth is sharks. Because, I don't know, it's never answered. It's a question that's never answered. Maybe they were good friends. Maybe sharks protected them. I thought they'd be competitors. That seems like a Google question. Uh, but I have no you idea. I, I, I sharks know. Oh, dolphins. Oh, doing this now? <laughs> Large sharks brand dolphins. Okay. okay. Continue on. Sorry. <laughs> uh, thank you for that interlude, Danielle. It seemed important to the conversation. Either way, point is, Merritt and Siri then bang underwater, which just sounds awful. Like, banging in that salt water? That seems really difficult. Ugh, no, thank you. Seems difficult, uncomfortable, and like you're gonna get an infection. <laughs> it's entirely possible. <laughs> it's like the worst idea. <laughs> salt water's cleansing, Sam. Uh, salt ocean water is not cleansing. <laughs> There's all kinds of stuff living in that. You have little organisms up here. Also, body. <laughs> don't cleanse yourself with salt water, Danielle. It's a bad idea. You know this. <laughs> I don't cleanse myself with salt water. It's not cleansing. I don't like it's a salt bad water. Idea. It's gross. <laughs> it's a bad idea. It's a bad idea, regardless. Makes me gag. Why are you drinking salt water? <laughs> no, sometimes I like gargle with salt water. Why? Because I get sores in my mouth. All right. Well, I guess that's your problem. <laughs> don't you ever have wounds in your mouth that you can't know? Salt water, gargoyle salt water. No, it's a I don't thing, usually get like, wounds in my mouth and gargoyle salt water. <laughs> like, You've never had like a, your bit your cheek or anything like that? Sure, I don't gargoyle salt water. It just goes away. Oh, well, it's a classic way to help. <laughs> so you know. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure it does. All right. <laughs> you can gargoyle with peroxide. That's a, that's a good way to do it. Sure. Carry on. Anyway, cut back to Siri and Marin returning to the festival after spending a few days in the hills canoodling back when she was 16. So we're back to their first meeting. Uh, uh, sure, okay. She tells him her parents were out of town and she has access to the family skimmer. So they plan to go back to her family estate for some more alone time. <laughs> My parents aren't home. Do you want to come over? Pretty much. That's exactly what's happening. <laughs> Marin states that he was very happy. He was 19 and in love. And I'm like, BS. You've known her like two days, but <laughs> fine. Nothing annoys me more than like... Insta-love? <laughs> yeah, Tina's or like, you know, love at first sight. And Tina's like, I've known her for two days. We're in love. We're going to start a life together. Like, yeah, you don't know anything. That's classic teenagers, though. <laughs> I know. I mean, I, that was also like every person as a teenager was that. And that's why I it's so like cringy to look back on that. Like, oh, guys, you have no idea how much you're going to hate this when you're older. <laughs> It's about from experience that I cringe, not from derision. 
Anyway, uh, Siri also tells Marin he's obviously a shipman, and he's very lucky that she found him before her uncle or his other separatist friends had. Ooh. Or else what? The separatists argue they should resist joining the hegemony, violently if necessary. So they're very much anti-hegemony people. So they would stop them from coupling? Or kill him. That's very dramatic. He's, what, 19? <laughs> They don't care. In <laughs> fact, just then they spy Mike entertaining some local girls when Mike is accosted by Siri's cousin Bertol and five of his That's buddies. That's what I mean, Sam. Mike and Bertol. <laughs> Bertol's a perfectly normal name. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, carry on. Bertol hurls insults at Mike, which he deflects with jokes. <laughs> Bertol then challenges Mike to a duel with swords because... I'm glad we've gotten past that. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, this is a Shakespearean drama. This is <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, basically. Oh my gosh. Mike scoffs at this. As well he should. Yeah, and he pulls out a laser pen because, of course, he has a laser pen. This is the future. And he starts to singe Bertol across the chest using the laser's lowest Now settings. he's just being stupid. Uh, Marin is, like, hesitating going over to Mike's defense. But after the laser comes out, he steps between Mike and Bertol, like, okay, let's break it up. Uh, Bertol takes this opportunity while Marin is distracting Mike to attack. Marin deflects Bertol, throwing him to the ground, but Bertol managed to slice Mike open at the stomach during that whole thing. So, you know, good job defending oh your God, friend there, Mike. Marin. While the so wound sad. wouldn't have been life-threatening in hegemony or on their ship where they had advanced medical technology, on this undeveloped planet, Mike dies in Marin's arms. Poor Mike, we hardly knew you. That's probably fine. He was, seemed like a real tool. <laughs> <laughs> Marin takes Mike's pen laser, sets it to its maximum setting, and then just it suggests that he goes around slaughtering Bertol and his gang with it. <laughs> I don't feel that bad about it. <laughs> Siri then brings her skimmer over and they leave and she tells him the separatists are a small, violent group. There will <laughs> be no reprisals. When you, said, when you said skimmer in my head, my head immediately went to like the ones you use in a pool. And I was like, is she gonna take the bodies out? <laughs> Danielle no, like a cover <laughs> skimmer. Stay off the program. Here, we've mentioned them before. <laughs> yes, I retain things so well in this book. So she says, the Separatists are a small, violent group. There will be no reprisals. You will stay with me until the council holds the inquest. And I'm like, wait a minute. It's just like you just murder a bunch of people. It's like nothing's going to happen. That sounds all right. Because they don't care about the Separatists? Something like that. I don't know. Regardless, Mike tells her no. And that to leave him where they hit the hawking mat, he'll make his own way back. And she does, then flies away. But Marin is stuck because the hawking mat is gone. Uh-oh. So he waits there until he's picked up by ship security some three hours later. Cut back to the present. Donald, his 43-year-old son, is urging him to move and go into the tomb. Marin compares Donald unfavorably to Alan, his older son, who was killed 33 years ago in a stupid battle that had nothing to do with him. What? Why is he supposed to go into the tomb? Well, he's there to visit Syria as like his last reunion with her. Oh, that's right. That tomb. Sorry, there are a lot of tombs in this story. I was confused. It's not the time tombs. This is Siri's tomb. Yeah, you can't say tomb without like clarifying which tomb you're talking about, Sam. Yeah, that's on me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll cop to that one. The one thing I'll cop to so far is that one. <laughs> I appreciate it. He brushes off Donald's offer to go with him into the tomb, and he enters alone. Cut now to his sixth reunion with Siri. He just missed her birthday, which was celebrated by over 5,000 people. He said her sixth reunion with Siri, and I said, and he's visiting her grave. No, that's the seventh reunion. I got it. I got it. He just missed her birthday, which was celebrated by over 5,000 people, and she had received a speech of well wishes from the CEO of the All Thing. So it's fancy even, pants. Who knows 5,000 people? Well, like, she didn't invite them, but she's like celebrated by masses of people. She's very famous and respected, is basically the okay. point. 
I want to have a giant party where people just celebrate me. <laughs> well, do something worth celebrating, Danielle. <laughs> Jeez, Sam. Ouch. <laughs> I mean, it's not just you. This is like me too. I have no reason to have five thousand people celebrate me. I've done nothing of no like that. This is just most people. <laughs> I'm great. I would celebrate me. <laughs> uh, you certainly would, Danielle. You do very often. <laughs> <laughs> I have healthy self-esteem. Yes, that's what we're calling your egoism. <laughs> uh, Siri and Marin were on an old school fishing boat. Marin was 23 by then. Siri had just turned 70. That was quick. Went from 21 to 23, and she went from 37 to 70. Well, she went from Oof. 16 to 70. Okay, even worse. Yeah, he went from 19 to 23, and she went from 16 to 70. Again, been 11 Wasn't years. she like 27, one of those? That was her second reunion or something. That was her first, first reunion, actually, because it's 11 years between each reunion. So she was 16 and then 27 when they had their first reunion and so on. Mm-hmm. Get, it, get the math right, Danielle. It's a prime number. Well, you said she went to 16 to 70, but that's not true because there are multiple meetings in between. They first met when she was 16, and now she's 70, and he's only been tw- to 23, so. Right. That's what I was saying. It was a big... He only went two years, but she ended up going a lot. <laughs> well, I mean, there have been more meetings. That, this is their sixth meeting. We haven't covered all of them yet. Right, 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 right. So they're battling a storm on this fishing boat off and on, and Marin is soaked and miserable. Eventually, they go below, and Syria asks him what will happen when they finish the Farcaster. Marin tells her it will open up a new era of trade and technology. People will flood into the planet, diplomats and ecologists first, and then missionaries, petroleum geologists, and developers. But don't worry, you'll be dead. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Well, actually, literally, she's already dead while they're waiting for the forecaster to activate. Literally, you just said she was like, yeah, I was looking up the forecaster that was brand new. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. She's dead. You're absolutely right. Thank she you. No, she'll be dead, though. Well, she's pretty old. Yeah, but she was only like a few years after this when they started the forecaster. Right. Anyway, Siri is surprised they need the petroleum still. And he's like, no society ever gets past petroleum. We still need it for like foodstuffs and plastics and stuff. So, ooh, commentary. Yeah, rough. And Maui Covenant has a lot of petroleum in the shallows. The modal isles that need to feed in those shallows will be developed and sold. Syria is incredulous, since even the Maui Covenant locals must ask permission of the sea folk to live on the isles, the sea folk being the dolphins. She spent an inordinate amount of time not learning anything about his work. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, a, it's incredible. I mean, like, you have this person that you apparently devoted your entire life to, and she's like, eh, I have no interest in anything he does outside of me. It, I mean, it's just more just so she can exposit to the audience here. Yeah, it's it just, it's incredible, really. <laughs> no, it's absolutely crazy. Marin assures her leases from most of the isles have already been sold. Later still, people flood into Maui Covenant as tourists or to live there, tens of millions of them. Siri comments on how close they are to finishing the forecast for only five or six months. One more trip for Marin to and from the web to bring the last supplies, and he'll end his commission, a rich man. They go into bed, and as they're dozing, Siri asks him what would happen if separatists attack the new tourist or hegemony residents. Marin tells her that the force troops would be sent in to annihilate them, and if the forecaster was somehow destroyed, a ship like the Los Angeles would return in a few months' ship time, 11 years local time, to crush everyone who resisted. So, you so know what? 11 years later, <laughs> you'd be fine. <laughs> Well, 11 years later, you'd be dead. You'd be completely <laughs> destroyed. Like, it would be, it would only delay things. It would not prevent things. <laughs> That'd be the least uh, supportive thing to hear. From who? That 11, you're like, yeah, somebody will be here 11 years from now. <laughs> I mean, that's fine. But like, they're stuck there. They can't get off their planet. So it's like, you're going to be sitting ducks for 11 years and they're coming to like bomb the crap out of you. Mm-hmm. You're just like, it's like signing your own death warrant just on a delay. <laughs> After a bit. Siri makes a move on him, but leaves a choice on whether or not to bang up to him. And Marin goes for it. <laughs> he's like, she's still got it at 70. Basically, he's like, she's still Siri. 
Back in the present, Marin is in the tomb, but it's empty. He calls Donald, who explains that Siri was cremated, so she's not actually in the tomb. But she left instructions that a metal box be left in there for him. Does it have an erg in it? No, because it's not a Mobius box, Danielle. <laughs> well, you gotta be clear in this book. I what, was. What if I, I told you? <laughs> I told you it was a metal box, not a Mobius box. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, do I know the material that the Mobius box is made out of? It's made out of Mobius, Danielle. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, sorry. That was obvious. <laughs> yeah, of course. Marin dismisses Donald and opens the lockbox to find a very powerful Steiner Gin hand laser and another comm log. Get ready for this story to be incepted again, Danielle. <laughs> Gosh, okay. <laughs> he also finds the hockey mat that had gone missing. Apparently, Siri had originally taken it to strand him there, which, you know, good for her. <laughs> he turns on the comm log and a hologram of Siri springs to life. Cut to Marin immediately after Mike was killed. We're back to this now. So she's, wait, is she telling a story? No. It, it, like before she starts her story, we cut to this now. Oh, we now. cut to Marin, back to Marin. Got it. Yeah. Because no, we can't, okay. just as she's about to get more information, nope, we got to have this whole interlude first, Danielle. It's called writing, Sam. It's to keep you interested. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize how writing works. <laughs> Immediately after Mike was killed, he's back on the ship. He wasn't kicked off the ship or, or dismissed from duty. And for the four months of the journey back to the web, Marin was miserable over Mike's death. Back in the web, he was given no punishment except for a written reprimand and a temporary reduction in rank and a prohibition of taking leave on Maui Covenant. So, you know, good job no, for no, him. No, don't kill people. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't get people killed and then don't murder all the locals. <laughs> What have we told you about murdering locals? He spends some time during his leave on the web. He, he goes to visit his family. It doesn't go well since it's been so long since he's seen them. And then he spends some time bopping around the web, wallowing in brothels, and then gambling on samurai fights on the planet Fiji, which sound awesome. Yeah, they do. Sign up for samurai fights. I'm sure they're brutal and horrible, but come on. Sounds cool but as But you're heck. on the planet Fiji, so it's okay. Yeah. He winds up in the Hellas Basin on Mars and spends some time among some monks there, uh, sort of alone, thinking of Siri while in solitude. Aww. After his leave, he returned to Maui Covenant on the Los Angeles. When they arrive, he's told plans have changed. The ambassador's experts think he'll do more good on the planet's surface than on the ship. Why? I don't know. But when he lands, there were crowds there cheering his and Siri's reunion as they sailed off to her family's aisle. So... This is never made explicitly clear in this story, but it seems like their union has become something like a local legend. Because she's so famous? No, like this is what makes her famous, is her liaison with him. Why? I don't know, Danielle. <laughs> the story doesn't explain it? No, it never goes into it, but it's something about like, oh, it's probably like the first off-worlder to, you know, have a child with a local and, and a wealthy and prominent local family, but still. And also... Maybe, you know, the romantic story at the post, like, oh, he, he travels the stars and comes back every 11 years for their romantic reunions while she ages, he stays the same. Like, there's a story there. Yeah, I, I guess, but I, mean, I guess there's nothing better to do on the planet. I mean, I can't, I mean, that's the best, that's my best, I don't know, Danielle, it's never made clear, but that's my best explanation. I'm willing to go with it. That'd be a weird reason to be famous, but sure. Apparently, she laments later about how she lets this myth, like, drive her life and, like, has used it to, you know, advance herself and become this powerful woman. Well, you know, did she do some good with that power? Oh, we'll get to that, Danielle. <laughs> the answer is no? Okay. <laughs> I didn't say no. Could very well be yes. Mm -hmm. So back in the tomb, the Hall of Siri is speaking. She expresses regret that she couldn't share their seventh reunion and berates him a bit for never having the decency to hide his shock at how old she had gotten every time they reunited. <laughs> 
Jeez, boy. <laughs> yeah. She says, there is something that belies the callowness and thoughtless egotism which you wear so well. A caring, perhaps. A respect for caring, if nothing else. Which feels very backhanded. <laughs> it does. She explains this calm lag is her personal diary, holding thousands of entries since she was 13. But now it's going to delete itself, all except for the few entries that follow. <laughs> this will self-destruct in three, two, one. That's exactly one. the thought I had. <laughs> it's like smoke coming out of it. <laughs> A new hollow of Siri in her late 40s appears. It was the last day of their third reunion. They were playing with some friends and their 10-year-old son Donald when a messenger had come to tell Siri something. Siri said they killed their son today. They killed Alon, who was 21. Marin had been confused, wondering how they could make such a mistake, but Siri reveals in the diary entry that it wasn't an accident. Alon had been a separatist when there was a raid. Alon didn't flee like he and Siri had planned, but chose to stay. Later, a mob formed after the raid at the embassy, and Siri had talked them down, saying, Now is not the time to show your anger and hatred. And she meant that literally. Like, there'll be another time to show your anger and hatred. Just bide your time for the right moment to strike. <laughs> So their son was a separatist? Yeah, so his son had been like part of the separatist. against the family? Uh, I don't know if he was against the family, because like Siri was helping him out and knew about it and was trying to like establish alibis and stuff for him to like, make escapes mm. if necessary. Mysterious. The images fade, and 26-year-old Siri appears. She says she's pregnant and so happy and misses him, but it'll be 10 years until he returns. She wonders why he didn't invite her to go with him. She wouldn't have gone, but the invitation would have been nice. <laughs> That's such a girl move. Did she hand pick these particular memories or yes. whatever diary entries? Okay. I'm guessing because nothing else makes sense. Because <laughs> they're just all over the place. So I was curious. <laughs> yeah. And then 16-year-old Siri appears. She's angry. Angry about how he left without saying goodbye, even if she is sorry about his friend dying. She declares she never wants to see him again. And the image fades out. Well, that doesn't work. Uh, obviously not. Like the 16-year-old <laughs> speaking to anger That might have boyfriend. been a better, better solution for her. Yeah. Who knows? Marin exits the tomb, takes out the hawking mat, and sits on it. He looks skyward just in time to see a massive explosion as the thermite charges he planted on the Farcaster array are detonated, destroying it. He detonated Farcaster thing? Did you not get any of that? <laughs> <laughs> He's blowing up the Farcaster? He planted thermite charges on the Farcaster array. They detonated. Ooh, did we know that before? There no. Was this, like new information. Okay. Absolutely new. I just wanted to make sure I missed, didn't miss something. <laughs> no. <laughs> They're shocked from the crowds as Marin takes off on the hockey mat. He briefly yells at a Thomas Hawk. He passes, saying, let them come. He looks forward to meeting the other separatists. Is it just a hawk? He's just, just yelling at a random hawk. He's yelling at a bird while he was flying. He's like, yeah, let them come. <laughs> I love that. That's why I put it in there. <laughs> That's a Danielle move. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so even more, he can't wait to talk to the dolphins and tell them it is time for the shark to come to the seas of Maui Covenant. He's inviting sharks? I don't know what that means. Maybe it's metaphorical. <laughs> Maybe he's the shark, Danielle. Maybe the dolphins are going to be sharks. <laughs> the dolphins are going to be sharks. <laughs> They're like, yeah, I'm ready for this. I was born for this. Shark mode, activate. <laughs> shark mode. <laughs> shark fin. He plans to tell them of Siri when, he, when the battles are won. To tell them of her and remember her. So he's waging war with the dolphins for Siri? No, he's waging war <laughs> on the Gemini. He's going to tell the dolphins all about Siri when he wins. And the sharks <laughs> just, are back. Just because. <laughs> yeah, like, hey, I'm going to tell you guys all about Siri. Let me talk to the dolphins. I'm going to tell you all about Siri because <laughs> I'm the sure they care the... <laughs> deeply. <laughs> and the sharks he's going to ring. Or they are the sharks. I don't know, Danielle. It's not clear. <laughs> 
be anything they want to be when they grow up. That's right. Sharks, apparently. <laughs> so the comlog shuts off, and the consul says that Marin died during Syria's rebellion. He's Marin's grandson, the son of Donald. Aww. Duh. Slash the consul, because they ran out of names. Yes, they ran out of names. <laughs> yeah, if there's one that Dan Simmons has demonstrated, it is lack of ability to come up with names for things, Danielle. His name's probably Mike. <laughs> There already was a Mike Danielle. There wouldn't be two Mikes. He was named after him. No, he wasn't. They existed at the same time. They were contemporaries. I don't know, then, Sam. So he was given the comlog by Marin shortly before he died and had been forbidden to join the fight. A third of their menfolk and a fifth of their women died in the rebellion, and all the dolphins and men of the isles were also killed. Aw, poor dolphin sharks. Wiped out, extincted. The Kato then tells his part of the story. He considered his father weak, for he defended the hegemony, even being elected a senator. His older sister fought and died with the rebels. After the rebellion, the original colonists were made a minority in their own world as the hegemony citizens flooded in. Did he say his dad was a senator? Yeah, became a senator. Mm, so was Bronze? Yeah. They're just all senators? I guess. Senator here, senator there? <laughs> I guess two. I don't know how many senators are there. There could be thousands of senators, Danielle. That's true. I don't know. I just, you know. I don't I don't know any senators personally. <laughs> Most people who work in like diplomatic offices probably have some connection to the government, Danielle. Yeah, that's probably true. You're right. Continue on. The consul played the part of a dutiful son, waiting. He returned to Maui Covenant to work in the office of the central administration, and it was very good at his work. He got married and had a son with a girl from Bertal's line. He was a skilled diplomat, and eventually he was promoted to consul. Wait, so, wait, whoa, whoa. So the consul dude... He married a Bartol Jr.? I mean, someone, probably a granddaughter or cousin or something. I'm glad he brought those two sides lines together. Back together. Yeah. <laughs> it was weird, man. <laughs> he goes on to explain that it's no accident they haven't encountered any quote-unquote intelligent alien life. At least none that would be considered intelligent on the Drake-Turing-Chen Index. You okay? Did I lose you? No, I'm still here. I was just contemplating the index. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Daniel, for cuddling the index. Is that a real thing? No. I mean, Drake <laughs> and Turing are real people. I mean, I'm sure there are people named Drake, Turing, and Chen, and you know, Drake was a person who came up with the Drake equation, and Turing yeah, 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 artificial so intelligence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. one of the many reasons I asked if it was real. <laughs> I mean, you know what? I could be mistaken. There could be a real Drake, Turing, Chen index, but I've never heard of it. So. I was just kidding. You know, if it, if it shows what qualifies as an intelligent species, I mean, Maybe. Okay, I I Google if sharks eat dolphins, but I'm not allowed to do that. But you can Google this. I wasn't going to keep it in the podcast. I was going to say, no, it's not a real thing. <laughs> Bummer. So as the web expanded, any species that attempted to seriously compete with humanity's intellect were wiped out. He gives examples of On the Planet Whirl, where they hunted and killed the Zeppelins. He doesn't know if they were intelligent, but they were beautiful. Zeppelins. I don't know what they are, Danielle. I've got got some good mental images. So they purposely go out of their way to hunt down anything that might compete with human intelligence. Basically, like anything that's saying like, oh, this thing is potentially a competitor with us, like has enough intelligence to be something that could challenge our intellectual superiority. We're not going to cotton to that. We're just going to wipe it out. Yeah, like that human nature. Very human. Yeah, exactly. It's like a human nature kind of thing. Like, I don't know if they're specifically trying to talk about intelligent life, but they're like, oh, this is a threat or this thing has to go. There's like this, whatever reason, whatever excuse they come up with to get rid of them. Yeah, that's the entire plot of Planet of the Apes, so sure. Yeah. <laughs> On Garden, they drained the Grand Fen, ending the reign of the Marsh Centaurs, who had ruled and threatened the hegemony progress there. So, Marsh centaurs? Marsh centaurs, man. They killed them. Killed the Marsh centaurs. Mars centaurs or Marsh, marsh centaurs? Marsh, as in a marshy fen. Love it. Yeah, I know. How cool is that? 
<laughs> Too bad they're extinct. But we liked them while they existed. I, I did. On Hebron, they killed a species called, that. I'm going to mispronounce this terribly, Senseichai Aluit. The Aluit were empathetic, and it was our fear and greed which killed them, and our unbearable alienness, he says. He then calls himself a Quisling, since he eventually betrayed the people of Hebron, in his view, by gaining their trust and convincing them to open themselves up to the web. And now Hebron is dependent on the web for most of what they need and will likely be fully absorbed into it against their will within a decade or so. So every single planet in this entire thing is just populated with humans. Yeah. Okay. Just humans. You know, maybe some alien fauna that is, you know... Like the Molo Isles, which are non-sentient. Right. After that, the consul had a breakdown, but his wife stayed with him while he dried out from alcohol and flashback abuse. Aww. He took his family then to Brezia for a new post. For decades, the forces of the Technocore had been harassing the ouster swarms wherever they fled. So it was decided by the Senate and the AI Advisory Council that there had to be a test of the ouster military might. An out-of-the-way planet in the outback, Brezia was chosen. Do you remember Brezia at all, Danielle? Do I remember Brezia? I remember the name Brezia. I don't remember anything about Brezia. Do you remember Colonel Kassad's story? Which was on Brezia. Is that where the um, school was or whatever? No, that's Mars. Oh, well, I don't know then, Sam. <laughs> Brezia was where the big ouster battle took place. Remember where they, they completely decimated the people there? And oh, then yeah. Kassad went in and kind of like had to throw off the concepts of Nubishido to fight the off- The Time War? No. It wasn't where the Time War was? No, there's no time war in the story. It wasn't that called was the time war. That was when he manipulate all the time, though. No, right? that was later. Oh, okay. Well, this I don't is know. Just but yes, the, I do. <laughs> this is just him with the military fighting off the ousters. Lots oh, that's of them, right. hundred thousands of them died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the beginning, and then the other ones towards the end. Got it. Yeah, and then he, get, he gets injured. And has to take a medical ship. Because the building crashes on him. Yeah, and then while he's passing Hyperion, they're attacked by the Astros there, and that's where they crash land in the Time Tomb Valley, and that's where the time fight happens. Yes. See, I remember that story somehow. Kind of. <laughs> Better than I remember the other one. <laughs> well, there's very little to say that isn't you remembering something better than that. <laughs> Anyway, so Brazia was chosen to be a test of the Ousters' military force. So they basically encouraged or baited the Ousters into attacking Brezia to see what kind of weaponry they had or what kind of fighting capabilities they had. Mm-hmm. The only miscalculation was that the console was still on the planet when they attacked. Uh, they were a few months earlier than expected. Still, the war proved the rapid deployment capabilities and resolve of the force, and the Gemini didn't have any real harm done to its interest because they didn't really care about Brezia or the millions who died there. That's unsurprising. You seem very blasé about this revelations about a <laughs> military conspiracy to wipe out millions. I just already feel like didn't they kind of do that earlier as well with the other planet where it took them like 10 million years to get there and they were kind of blasé about the the This was that planet, Danielle. The right, the same planet. That's what we we already knew there was a conspiracy. It's the same thing. <laughs> we didn't know there was a conspiracy. They were just far away at that point. Okay, yeah, I, but I, at the time that we spoke about that, I said, that seems weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't have any ships out of plan that wasn't theirs? I just, I already thought that it was kind of sketchy to begin with, so I'm not overly surprised that it actually yeah, is sketchy. Yeah, but your reasoning, I mean, I'm not saying you don't have the correct conclusion, but I'm saying the train of logic that got you there was completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's all right, though. <laughs> <laughs> I take what you can get. <laughs> to guess anything in this book, I should get points. <laughs> Anyway, the consul's wife died in the bombardment, and his son died shortly after the war when a booby trap building exploded. Maybe the same one as Kassad, but I don't think it is. That'd be funny. A poor consul. Yeah. 
So he was promoted after Brescia and assigned to liaise directly with the Ousters. The goal was to provoke the Ousters into attacking Hyperion. The Ousters had long been obsessed with the Time Tombs and the Shrike, and they had accidentally attacked Kassad's hospital ship, which they mistook for a warship. Even worse, when the Ousters did that, from their perspective, they had revealed they had the ability to defy the Time Tombs' anti-entropic fields because they had managed to land their ships there with the crews intact, something that had never before been able to be done by anyone from the hegemony. Ousters are cool. Yeah, so they have something here that they've revealed some power accidentally during that. Right. I thought that the council was, like, more mysterious than this. What do you mean? I don't know. We just didn't know a lot about the dude. That is <laughs> like, definitely being he mysterious. He opened the book and then he was, like, didn't have a name for the entirety of the book. And it turns out he's just a guy with a wife and a kid that got murdered on a sad day. <laughs> Doesn't have a name. Daniel, it's amazing how someone is mysterious when you know nothing about them. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but the book kind of like played it like he would had, I don't know, more mystery surrounding him. Well, the mystery is like all the weird stuff he's talking about right now. I guess. I'm just a little disappointed. Oh, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Danielle. Actually, I don't care <laughs> at all about you being disappointed. Ouch. <laughs> My job is not to disappoint you or not with his stories, not mysterious men, but to simply tell you what it says. <laughs> I just thought he was more interesting than he was. I think he's pretty interesting. We're about to get into more of it. Okay. Continue. Maybe you just have unreal expectations of what interesting means. Like, who's the most interesting character you think so far, then? Uh, the Shrike, because I mean, it's mysterious? Yes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. yes. You're like, you're holding uh, Ooh, I like this man because he's so mysterious. We don't do anything about them. I'm going to dump his ass. I didn't say I liked him because of that. I just said I thought that he, I don't know. I just thought there was more mystery surrounding them. I didn't think he was just like a normal dude going about his business. I mean, he's normal in the sense that anyone in this book is normal. Okay, but his story's just kind of... I mean, I we, we aren't done with the story, but it's pretty basic so far. Call him basic? Ooh. <laughs> I mean, we're only halfway through. Continue. So anyway, Mina Gladstone's idea was to have the Ousters attack the Hegemony, Hyperion specifically, so that the Hegemony could annex Hyperion, which would shift the power of the Technocore so the more human-friendly coalitions would gain power, as the less human-friendly elements oppose Hyperion being part of the web. They would also take the opportunity to eradicate the Ousters, so yeah, a double win, you know? Yeah, win-win-win. That's a triple win, Danielle. Come on. Win-win-win-win. <laughs> <laughs> We're done here. <laughs> it's a visible by two. So the hegemony gave him a private spacecraft, which he fitted with a piano for reasons. Reasons. <laughs> I'd forgotten the piano thing. <laughs> yeah, he put a baby Grand Steinway in there. <laughs> now I like him again. <laughs> right. And they sent him on his way to find the ousters. He was eventually picked up by them. They knew he was a spy, but they still decided to negotiate with him. I'm going to read you a quote he uses to describe the ousters because, you know, it's crazy and I think it's fun. I will not try to describe the beauty of life in the swarm. There's zero gravity globe cities and comet farms and thrust clusters. There are microorbital forests and migrating rivers and the 10,000 colors and textures of life at rendezvous week. Suffice it to say that I believe the Ousters have done what the web humanity has not in the past millennia. Evolved. So basically, he's seen the Ousters having like moved forward and like taking humanity to the next level, while the hegemony has been stuck in the imperialist patterns of humanity's past, clinging to recreating representations of old Earth societies like Hebron and Maui and you know uh, Lucis and all these sort of like New Jerusalem and all the like, cities they're remaking. I mean, I can't really disagree with that. If the Ousters would stop just murdering everybody, they'd be pretty cool. Well, the Ousters only are only murdering people because they were being attacked by the Technocore and were goaded into attacking Brezzi as a threat. And now they're being yeah, goaded into attacking Hyperion. Like, they're not the ones instigating any of this. That's fair. They were happy to live among the stars, basically. Live among the stars. That the new Hyperion theme song, Danielle? 
Yeah, I'll think of something. <laughs> Keep going. Love from the stars. Ooh. What else you got? I'll work on it. On the Maybe wings we'll of a it. shrike. On <laughs> the wings of a shrike. Your double meaning. Because bird and blade monster. I'll see what I can come up with. Maybe we can perform it for our finale. No, this is the finale, so get ready. Well, you have three other hooks, Sam. Oh, you mean the finale finale? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to really work on it. Work you need hard. a new theme song for each book, Danielle. Do I? I mean, yeah. is there a different arc for each book? Does the Shrike not come back in book two? Because that'll oh, be confusing. Danielle, I can't wait to tell you. I have a description for you of the second book. I'm going to share with you at the end of this story. You're going to love it. Am I? <laughs> yes. Anyway, he goes on to say that the Ousers, though, unlike the web society, the hegemony, have explored new technologies, new realms of ethics and aesthetics and art. So he sees them as being like what humanity could become, whereas the web is like a stagnant form of humanity. So we like the Ousers. I mean, he doesn't necessarily like the Ousers. He just like sees them as being better than the hegemony, or at least having progressed more than hegemony. Whether or not they're ethically better, that's not clear. Okay. So the console then tells the Ousers everything about the plan for their extinction, the trap at Hyperion, everything. And they tell him that they had learned through intercepted communications that the destruction of Old Earth, the big mistake of 38, which is a great name. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. The yeah, calculate the big mistake. It was no mistake, Danielle, but intentional, planned by the Technocore and the fledgling hegemony government to force humanity to start the Hegira and expand the hegemony. Technocore is really doing some stuff. Well, the Technocore and and the hegemony leadership, like they were on board with this because like, yeah, that'll build the hegemony up because once we get people to start migrating, we can start expanding different planets. We'll start colonizing in earnest. Now we're going to give them some real m- momentum, essentially, if we destroy Earth. <laughs> that doesn't seem like an overreaction at all. I mean, it's evil as heck, but, you know, I can't argue with the results. <laughs> it did work. So 30 years of web time later, the consul returns to Tau Ceti Center. He meets with Mina Gladstone, telling her almost everything. How the Ousters knew about the trap, or would attack anyway, how they wanted him to be consul on Hyperion as a double agent, but he was going to be a triple agent, so she should do it anyway. I'm convinced that Mina Gladstone's secretly evil. Well, I mean, the whole hegemony is kind of not so secretly evil. <laughs> <laughs> but she's like extra evil. <laughs> Maybe. What he didn't tell her was that they had promised to give him a device that would open the time tombs and let the Shrike roam free. Yes, do it. So he was assigned to Hyperion, <laughs> and the Alshus gave him that portable fat line they used to contact him to arrange a meeting on the planet. He met with a woman named Andil and three technicians who worked on setting up a device near the time tombs. The Alshus lacked forecasters since those were created by and required the Technocore to operate, and no human, including the Alshus, had managed to understand it. But in their attempts to understand, they had learned a lot about time, and they had become obsessed with time on their slow marches between the stars. They understood the time tides, the anti-entropic fields, and while they couldn't generate them, you know, make their own, they could manipulate them and theoretically collapse them, opening the time tombs and freeing the Shrike. I'm down for this. Um, we're rooting against the humans, apparently. <laughs> I mean, that's not hard. I love a book hard. where you root against the humans. <laughs> well, to be fair, we're rooting against some of the humans. A bulk. <laughs> that's fair. But we're also rooting against the Technocore because they're also no good. So, like, everyone's oh, yes. bad in this book. Like, we're rooting <laughs> against everyone. <laughs> Nobody is good. So the Ousters believed the tombs were artifacts sent from their future, and the Shrike was a weapon to be used against the Technocore by them. Andel tells the Council it will take time for the device to cause the anti-entropic fields to collapse, up to a year or more. But once the process is started, it's irreversible. It'll happen. It just will take a while for it to fully happen. But they plan to wait until just before the invasion to activate the device, since there's still some debate among the ten Councils on if they should undertake the invasion at all. The Shrike and the consequences of releasing it are still unknowns. 
So they're on the Team Shrike side. They think the Shrike is going to be a weapon they've sent back to help them defeat the Technocore, but they're not like 100% sure on that, so they're still debating it a bit. Have we seen the Shrike kill any ousters so far? Yeah, with Kassad. They murdered the heck out of them. That's what I thought. All right. Maybe it's just a wild creature and you're hoping for the best. Well, I mean, that's what they're, so this is all they're, what they're discussing. But then the console's like, oh, that's going to be too long. So he then shoots Andal and the other technicians and then sits down to weep for a little while, but then activates the device starting the collapse of the anti-entropic fields. My way or the highway. Basically, he's like, I'm gonna, you, you don't have time to do this. I'm going to make it happen. So he waited for a while for the strike to show up and kill him, but it doesn't show up. And so then he leaves and sends a message to the Ousters that there had been an accident. The strike had attacked and killed Andal and the others, and the device had been activated prematurely <laughs> during the fighting. You're like, I don't know what happened. It was so weird. The Shrike just showed up and murdered, which is what the Shrike does. Like, the Shrike is such a convenient scapegoat. I would it's the use best. the Shrike for everything. I'm like, I didn't do my homework, Mom. The Shrike showed up. The Shrike <laughs> ate my homework. And then your, I bet the mom's like, do your homework or the Shrike will show up. <laughs> Hi, I'm the Shrike. Do your homework, kid, or I'm going to put you on my big old tree. <laughs> Strike out, time suckers. Homework time. Homework <laughs> time. You can use them for commercials to try and get kids to do things. Absolutely. You can be for PSAs. <laughs> Don't do drugs, kids, or the strike will put you on a tree. I'll get you. Uh, I feel like that would work. <laughs> I don't think it would. Every kid in the world would be like, What's the strike and what are you talking about? You would know because the strike would show up in your bedroom and steal you away and murder you. I don't think the parents would be on board with that. Uh, maybe some it's of them. Very but... real threat. <laughs> <laughs> think how well behaved the kids would be. Oh, <laughs> uh, awful. And the adults, really. I mean, yes, society ruled by fear and random murder. <laughs> Perfect society. You've done the masterpiece society, Danielle. Pretty sure that's worked in the past. Oh, yeah. And What's... not had any issues whatsoever. Never. So he then contacts Gladstone, telling her he had eliminated the ouster agents and the invasion was coming as planned. Released from his duties on Hyperion, he took his ship to find solitude in the outback until he was contacted to go on the pilgrimage, which brings us back to the start of the book. So he doesn't care at all about the machinations of the core or the hegemony or the ousters. He just wants vengeance on the hegemony. That's fair. And he knows the strike's coming. Meanwhile, the strike's just kind of around, right? I mean, it hasn't been able to leave the immediate area of the time tombs, but as the anti-entropic fields have lessened, it's been able to, to wander further and further afield, and eventually when they're completely gone, it'll be entirely free to go wherever it wants. So his goal is to drop the fields entirely so he can wander. Oh, that process has already started. He's done that. It's just going right. to take time. That was his goal, though. Yeah, absolutely. He's like, I'm releasing this strike. I hope it destroys the Gemini or the Technocore or both. Or and whoever. I don't yeah, care. Yeah, take exactly. <laughs> yeah, he's basically like, you know, just, just like, faces. Yeah, he's, he's a agent of revenge. He doesn't care about the ousters, like, if it kills them, whatever, who doesn't, fine, but he's mostly focused on getting revenge on the Gemini. Okay, he's Team Shrike. Got it. Team Murder, yeah. So after his story, Hoyt identifies him as the spy, because Mina had told each of them that an ouster spy was among them, which I don't know if you remember that from the beginning of the book, but she did tell the council to look out for an ouster spy. I super don't remember that, yeah. but also, I like the idea that the spy would be like, I'm the spy. <laughs> well, he doesn't really confirm it, but like, what are they going to do? <laughs> <laughs> The console has been in contact with the ousters through the fat line on his ship, which is connected to Ceres' comm log, which he has with them, reporting on their progress, but receiving no reply. But even Does though he's got Mi- no whoa, reply- whoa, wait. Hey, sorry, sorry. Does Mina know that he's the ouster spy? No. So you just she just knows there's a spy? Yeah, she told every one of them that there's a spy. She might know he's a spy. Who knows? It's very. We're about to cover this. It's very complicated. 
Okay, so she's just being weird. Maybe, maybe this is all part of some like big old double bluff or some kind of, you know, things you wanted to set up. Why did they even allow this pilgrimage in the first place? Like there right. are things going on here. Got it. Okay. So anyway, he's been in touch with the Alistair through the fat line, sending them regular reports, and he's got no responses. But even though he has no responses, he can tell that when the Drossel was destroyed, something was wrong. Because he explains that Templar, specifically the true voice of the tree, have something like a telepathic connection to their tree ships. However, See? You laughed at me when I said that. Yeah, to the tree ships, Danielle, not to regular metal ships. But I, he said, I was talking about how he had a, like, I just, what I said <laughs> is that scene had a connection to his tree ship, and I was curious if the console also had a connection to his ship somehow. And he doesn't. Right, but you acted like it was the craziest question in the Danielle, whole world. Absolutely. He has a psychic connection with his tree ship. Tree ships are living things. That's why he's connected. You can't make a psychic connection to a non-living thing. I, why not? <laughs> Obviously, Danielle has nothing to psychically connect with. It has no brain. You do not know that in this book, Sam. <laughs> it's not even AI. It could be an AI. It's not. <laughs> like, you don't know. Danielle, accept it. He doesn't have a connection to a ship. That's I'm just a fact. I'm not saying he should have a connection to that. I just was appalled that you were so annoyed <laughs> that I'd ask that question. I wasn't annoyed, Danielle. I just wanted to, like, rip you a bit on that. <laughs> I think it was a completely valid question. I will hold that to my grave. <laughs> well, on your, 99 on your death at my bed. deathbed. Yeah, you'd be like, tell Sam. He might have had his like, connection to a ship. Totally valid. <laughs> It'd be not the worst last words. <laughs> if you manage to hold on to this to your deathbed, I'll consider my life to have been a success. I had that big an impact on you. <laughs> it's possible. I got that, Who knows, I got that Who knows deep what in your crazy brain. things you think of on your deathbed. If I'm that deep in your brain, Danielle, you are got bigger things to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he explains that Templars have a telepathic connection to their tree ships, but Massing took the destruction too well. He was too subdued, so he must have known the ship was going to be destroyed and severed the connection himself before it happened. Ooh, good point, good point. He had planned to confront Massing that same night to ask him, like, hey, what happened? What was that all about? But when he went to his cabin to do that, it was covered in blood, as they had found it later that morning, but the Mobius box was unsealed. The Erg may have escaped. He resealed the cube and left it at that. And then decided to tell people anyway. Yeah. They debate for a bit on if executing him as a traitor is a good idea. And Saul makes the point that, quote, if Mina Gladstone, an element of the core, chose you for the ouster contact, they knew very well what you would do. Perhaps they could not guess the ouster would open the time tombs. Maybe. But you are no more an instrument of your own will than this child, indicating Rachel. And the council's like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. So. So what Saul is saying, is he's not saying it's true, but he's like, it's very possible the council and Mina Gladstone and like, they all predicted that he would betray them to the ousters. And so maybe he was chosen because of that. Right. So like his betrayal may have been what the hegemony wanted to entice the ousters to attack Hyperion as they originally wanted. Anytime you get into the, am I doing this because somebody thinks they're going to do this or I'm doing this because I want to do this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just becomes messy plot wise. Yeah. And the council gets very confused and doesn't mention, just like, all right, whatever. And doesn't say anything more about that. You'd second guess everything you did. Yep. In the end, they decide to go on together, not killing the console. Braun gets up and hugs the console, followed shortly by Soul. Martin starts blathering on about his poem and how it's flowing again. And does anyone want to read it? He really wants to go back in time and change the past, sacrifice himself to the strike to save Sad King Billy. Ugh, Martin. 
living his best life. <laughs> yeah, he's clearly drunk. He's such a drama queen. They all commiserate a bit, and eventually Braun suggests they all get some sleep. And that's the end of the chapter. You ready for the epilogue, Danielle? I am so ready for the epilogue. The next morning, the console awakes the sound of Hoyt playing his balalaika. The battle's still raging above. They all trek out into the valley floor towards the time tombs. Also, I don't know if I missed this, but they're all wearing capes. Like, literally every one of them is wearing a cape. <laughs> Even the priest is wearing a cape. It keeps you warm. <laughs> the only person who I think is not wearing a cape is Kassad because he's wearing full battle armor. But everyone else, wearing a cape. And I guess capes are just mandatory fashion in the future, which is awesome. <laughs> I feel like that's probably true, though. <laughs> that's great. I still can't believe I missed that detail. So 40 minutes of walking later, they pass the dead city of poets as a storm behind them amidst crashes of thunder. The console spots a small figure in the distance near the tombs. What is it? Could be the Shrike. Could be Hetmasting. Unclear. Rachel. Yeah, it could be Rachel. <laughs> the baby that Saul is carrying. No. <laughs> no, grown-up Rachel. There's like two of her now. No, it could be Monita. Yes. The Monita, the, the Shrike, Shrike lover. Uh, Lady Shrike? Yeah, Lady Shrike. That one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then they notice the time tombs are glowing. Each time tomb is glowing a different color. And the glow is glowing like steadily show. brighter. Yeah. A brand new phenomenon. music and like club? Yes. And the Shrike comes out and goes, D-Day Shrike in the house. <laughs> I'm going to put you up my tree. <laughs> I control time, you suckers. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be the coolest club. <laughs> DJ Shrike, you're all gonna it's die. Shrike out. <laughs> DJ Shrike is in the tombs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this night's gonna last forever. Literally, I control time. You're never gonna leave. <laughs> oh, I murdered you. Ah, cool. You're back alive. Oh, I murdered you again. I can do that. I'm the Shrike. <laughs> <laughs> I think we found a new favorite character, Danielle, <laughs> DJ Shrike. Oh my gosh, I'm crying. If we put a spotlight on him, he'd be his own disco ball because he's metal. <laughs> well, that sounds like the <laughs> epilogue. Oh, we're not near the epilogue ending, Danielle. We've got more to go. Nope. I, in, my, in, my, in my head canon, they're just going to a club. <laughs> Danielle, the ending is so much better than this. It's so much better. It's, it's almost as ridiculous. I love it. Okay, okay. so okay. We, we must compose ourselves and put DJ Shrike aside for now. <laughs> I don't know if we must, but... We, for the moment, we'll bring DJ Shrike okay. back. He's going to be a recurring character, I'm sure. <laughs> DJ Shrike will always live in our hearts. <laughs> And in our ears. <laughs> oh, don't try the brown acid. <laughs> oh, DJ Shrike is great. Okay, what happens, Sam? What happens? Uh, We're so close. Right. So they're walking along and Saul is singing quietly to Rachel. When the console asks him, hey, what's that tune you're singing? Saul says it's from some ancient flat film, like pre-Higara, pre-Web, pre-everything, and starts to sing it loud so they all can hear it. Amazingly, Braun recognizes the tune and starts to sing along. Eventually, everyone joins hands in a line, walking together, <laughs> singing loudly. Do you know what song they're singing, Danielle? It's a musical. It's, uh, we're off to see the wizard. <laughs> is it really? Yeah, that's a rough No! Yeah. Why? God, why? That's the book ends. Them singing, we're off to the wizard, hand in hand, marching down the valley towards the time tombs that are glowing. What is wrong with dancing? <laughs> <laughs> I told you the ending was awesome, Danielle. They're just singing, we're to the wizard, holding hands. I just imagine, like, skipping along with you in the movie. I'm so against the ending of that book. <laughs> <laughs> that's the end of the book. Ever. 
Uh, so happy when I read them. Like, oh, Daniel's gonna hate this. No, I hate it so much. <laughs> Oh, I'm so happy that it ended that way. I remember it ended in a ridiculous fashion. I'm so glad it was the Wizard of Oz ending. That makes me so mad. <laughs> this is the plot that the, the whole book ends with no plot. Them singing, marching towards the time tomb. Uh, so good. I'm deeply against the ending of this book. <laughs> it's no more ridiculous than DJ Shrike. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm so happy that ending was them singing Rock to the Wizard, holding hands and skipping <laughs> off down towards the time tombs to meet the Shrike. I hope it goes all for them. It does not. <laughs> it does not. I'm fairly certain it does not go well. <laughs> they all die. Although I'm pretty sure that does happen, yes. <laughs> I don't remember much about it the next like book, but I do remember there's a lot of death. the second book. <laughs> Uh, okay, okay, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, let me send you the Wikipedia summary for the summary of the next book called The Fall of Hyperion. How mad am I going to be at this, Sam? You're going to be so mad at this, this summary. It's oh going to gosh. infuriate you. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm already angry. Oh, good. One sentences. We love one sentences. This book concludes the story begun in Hyperion. It abandons the storytelling frame structure of the first novel and is instead presented primarily as a series of dreams by John Keats. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I'm like, you're like, you were there up until the last like three words. You're like, okay, it finishes the story from my period. Good. It, it bends the whole frame of the Canterbury Tales. But it doesn't. Screen. Oh, then it's Dreams by John Keats. Okay, never mind. <laughs> we're back to a ridiculous framing device. Can't wait. Isn't John Keats uh, dead? <laughs> Why do they keep bringing back this man? Because <laughs> he had dreams about Hyperion. He wrote a poem. He did. A poem called Hyperion. We should read the poem Hyperion sometime on this podcast. <laughs> I'm not sure he finished it. I think he's had two unfinished. that he That's started and did not finish. <laughs> That's the whole point. Like This is supposed to be like his unfinished work, the Hyperion Cantos. Yeah, there's two of them. Oh. Like Return to Hyperion and Hyperion. Yeah. I don't know what the other one's called. I'm so, I'm so delighted that ending was everything I wanted it to be for you, Danielle. <laughs> oh, God. I can't believe I sat through months for that. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the best payoff? It's like, I feel like Dan Simmons just pulled a massive tr- like props to him. That was so good. Uh, and I've read this book like three times, so he jokes on me. <laughs> it seemed to work for you. Oh, uh, I'm so happy that he has the next book is all about dreams of John Keats. It's so good. to be so good. We're going to have to do more research on Keats. Uh, I mean, I, I've, I've read this book. They said three times. I still know nothing about Keats, so any research would help. Hey. Gave you some. Yes, that, that uh, scintillating summary from earlier. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to have to give a biography on the way. Also, 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 the end of this book, like most books, has a list of other works by Dan Simmons, and there are so many books. He's written a lot of books, and I don't know if they're all as insane as this series, but I kind of want to find out. Sounds like something you should read. I mean, when I have time, Danielle, I have three more Hyperion books to get through. <laughs> like, I have no time. <laughs> I can't even get the Hyperion. <laughs> I barely got through this one, Danielle, the time for this recording. I appreciate your effort. So, Danielle, what do you think of Hyperion, the first of the Hyperion Cantos books? What do I think of it? How do you feel about it? Feel good about going through all that so far? No. <laughs> <laughs> I am curious. I'm curious where it's going, I guess. Yeah, so you're at least busy intrigued about how they're going to actually confront the Shrike and what's going to happen. Like, I admit, 
this first book is just he front loads all the world building, all the background, all the setup. It's not like he disperses it between the other books. Like it's all like here's a dump truck full of lore that you're gonna get, and then the plot will start after this book. I am very hopeful that he's like crossing over the Wizard of Oz with John Keats's Hyperion as some kind of weird like retelling. <laughs> I'd be here for that. Like yeah, the strike is the man behind the curtain. <laughs> Well, I mean, when you pull the grin apart, you don't see a wizard there. You see DJ Shrike dropping beats and scratching records because he's made of knives. <laughs> oh, so excited for the next book. Can't wait. I am so thrilled. So, so thrilled for the next book. I can't wait to finish the story of Hyperion and then abandon the storytelling frame of the first novel and instead do a series of dreams by John Keats. And then do two more novels that are not Hyperion, but also are Hyperion. Excellent. So looking forward to it. And I don't know if I'm going to need a respite before we start the next book or not. So we'll see if my next episode is more Hyperion or not. But either way, come back soon for the fall of Hyperion. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Boots and pants, boots and pants, boots and pants, boots and pants. You're saying boots and pants? Yeah. Boots and cats, Danielle. <laughs> and I like pants. Okay, well, you do you, I guess. <laughs> Boots and pants. Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, boots and cats make sense. Cats boots love pants, boots. They it? crawl in them all the time. There's a whole story about one that wears them. Yeah, exactly. See? Total sense. <laughs> don't you feel pants silly now? Pants and boots don't go together at all. Hardly. Hardly. Well, I guess if anyone out there wants to write in and tell us how they think the Wizard of Oz ending of this book would go, or if they have a request for D-Day Shrike to spin, they can contact us at bookretorts.com. Please, please do that. Uh, you can also tweet Instagram or Facebook us at bookretorts. Until next time, hold on, more Hyperion to come. Until then, Yay! bye! Take care, everybody. to send us a dj shrike song like actually do like a dj shrike <laughs> <Yeah>. mix <laughs> i really want that in life <laughs>